0: Today is the fifth day of our autumn 7-day session. It's the 19th of May 2016 And we're going to um, again pick up where we left off um, In reading from Zen Teachings and Practice Edited by Kenneth Craft From a piece by um, Roshi Sunyana Grafe Entitled Seeing the Ox, A Second Look And um, (coughs) we left off yesterday where Roshi Grave was talking about the danger um, of focusing too narrowly on Kensho and it being possible to to neglect the compassion aspect of practice. And that when we do this, then our practice becomes barren, um, egocentric. She quotes a master who said, "Even if some benefit accrues, because confined to oneself alone, it cannot but be small." The the, the benefits that we that we receive from our practice are really only um, meaningful, truly meaningful when they're shared. Master Dogen uh, speaks in his teachings of. Uh, Daishin, great mind Having a magnanimous attitude He also speaks of, of parental mind and This is this the this nurturing spirit of, um, of turning towards others, caring for them He also talks about joyful mind And this one really comes out of these first two that there is is so much um, satisfaction to be uncovered and joy if we are sharing the benefits we receive from the practice. She goes on to say that that While we accept that we have to exert ourselves to realize wisdom We often think that the compassion part is just going to happen on its own But it also needs to be cultivated, to to be worked at Um, Here's what the Dalai Lama says about compassion He says, it is not enough to be compassionate You must act there are two aspects to action One is to overcome the distortions and afflictions of your own mind that, in is, that is in terms of calming and eventually dispelling anger This is action out of compassion The other is more social, more public When something needs to be done in the world to rectify the wrongs If one is really concerned with benefiting other, others One needs to be engaged, involved So Zazen actually can be a fulfillment of this first part About overcoming the distortions and afflictions of our own mind Sometimes other types of practices are helpful in this regard, in this inner work Um, The Brahma Viharas Which are not a part of of traditional Zen But which... um, can be very helpful are practices that I take up from time to time and I I suggest sometimes to students that they do them this just um, for people who may not be familiar with these the Brahma Viharas are uh, contemplation practices so they have a discursive element to them and there are four aspects to it Brahma Vihara means um, divine abode The, the four aspects are loving kindness, which is wishing all beings well. Compassion, which is wishing that they be relieved of their suffering. Sympathetic joy, which is rejoicing in others' good fortune. And the final one is um, equanimity or impartiality. Impartiality. Um, In other words, developing an ability to um, undertake these first three, loving kindness, compassion and sympathetic joy, with everyone. In other words, going beyond our uh, personal preferences and developing a kind of universal ability to... um, Offer loving-kindness and and compassion There are also other um, Practices from the Tibetan tradition Which um, are very powerful means of of, uh, developing compassion Such as Tong Lin This giving and taking practice where you um, Receive or take in uh, the suffering of the world and give away happiness and ease and light, and many and and then many other kinds of um, contemplations where one explores um, uh, our kinship with others in the sense of our, our sharing. Uh, a desire to to free ourselves from suffering going into this in great in great detail and making it real in one's heart so there's there's one aspect of this action that the dalai lama is talking to is is the inner work freeing others from our afflictions because when we're afflicted, we um, often don't just hurt ourselves, but also others. And then the second part is social engagement. We we can't. We so many things in the world where where we can get involved to relieve injustice and problems we can't we can't do everything but if we if we look for areas where we feel a strong affinity and respond and it can be um, reaching out to individuals um, people also animals trying to uh, bring about change to to institutions which cause suffering what we can call structural structural suffering greed, anger and ignorance that are, that are embedded in uh, uh, processes and our ways of relating to each other getting involved and being committed to that this is one of the ways we Uh, develop our compassion like a muscle if we use it then it will get stronger Continues. Still, the lure of Kensho is hard to ignore Compassion, we believe, is what you learn in Girl Scouts Nothing very glamorous Enlightenment, on the other hand, seems really special The mystical wisdom you get from a master It is something we want for ourselves To make us spiritual human beings full of love and light and joy at the beginning of training, it is a rare Zen student who, when asked about his or her aspiration, will not say, I need to change my life. I want to become enlightened. Actually, not everybody has this, this articulates it in this way, But in terms of wanting to become enlightened. But I think most people who, who come to practice do feel they need to change their life in some way. And she says, what this often means is, I'm unhappy And I need to find a way to make my life better right now. The emphasis is on the I, closely followed by right now. The unspoken assumption is that Kensho will do the trick and from then on it will be smooth sailing. Or that practice will do the trick, that that meditation will, will solve our problems. She says the emphasis is on the I and on right now. Um, in the talk, the Dalai Lama once said that that um, Westerners always want um, the fastest, easiest method, and he added, especially the cheapest. And this this is something this this expectation. Of course, we um, we um, inherit from our um, the culture surrounding culture, which which um, tends to condition us to think that we we should get get things immediately and easily. It's just a click of the mouse away. This kind of uh, attitude. To turn now to. Um, um, Roger Bowden article in, in this book. Um and his his article is called Standing by Enlightenment without resting in it. Because he also addresses these um, these assumptions, these expectations that, that Kensho will will um, somehow fix everything. He writes Kensho is not a Zen version of going to heaven. An awakened person may have her head in the clouds, but where else could her feet be but on the ground? And in this earthly world of form and phenomena, a first Kensho still leaves plenty of debris to clean up. If before awakening you have a particular problem with fear, for example, afterward it will revisit you, like the ghost of Christmas past. The strength of the problem will have diminished in accordance with the depth of the opening, but there it will be. The same will be true with, say, depression, impatience, sexual cravings, jealousy, arrogance, and any of the other 1,001 residu- residual body-mind tendencies. Harada Roshi, at an advanced age, told Kaplow That as a young man before beginning Zen practice He had had a terrible temper And that after his Kensho It took him another 10 years of monastic training Before he felt free of it He also told um, Kaplow That he was sure he would have killed somebody If he hadn't taken up practice His his, his anger was so um, uncontrollable And I, I'm guessing that he came, he probably came from a, from a samurai family. A martial, a kind of martial background. Enlightenment in the classic sense, as the ancient masters used the word, is exceedingly rare, especially as a first opening. And this, this points up the, the way um, in which we use this word enlightenment to cover a lot of ground from a, from a tip-of-the-tongue type of taste of uh, true nature right up to a profound, um, uh, deeply transformative experience. And, and because of this, all kinds of misunderstandings can can arise those old masters knew through their own experience that even full-bodied awakening does not eradicate ego the great Chinese then master Kui Shan instructed if a man is truly enlightened and has realized the fundamental He is no longer tied to the poles of cultivation and non-cultivation But ordinarily, even though the mind has been awakened by an intervening cause There still remains the inertia of habit Formed since the beginning of time Which cannot be eliminated at a stroke He must be taught to cut off completely The stream of his habitual ideas and views Caused by the still operative karmas. That's why Zazen is so essential after an awakening experience. Because the, the the streams of habitual ideas and views keep coming. A force of habit is, is very strong. And... Um, We've, we've been habituated over lifetimes or if we don't buy rebirth we can understand that, that it's in our genes um, responses to uh, our environment are, are laid down there so that it's not just a personal thing it's, it's, um, it transcends our, our, our ego even what good then is the first show? You might ask that question <laughs> just as roshi does here if it is indeed genuine it reveals the insubstantiality of all phenomena so that neither thoughts nor so-called outside world can ever deceive you again in the same way it confirms that there is nothing outside your own mind an insight which fundamentally changes your relationship to people, to things, and to change itself. And it reveals the bedrock of faith that there is only this enlightened self-nature. Although lingering emotional afflictions and other habitual tendencies will maintain a presence, you will be quicker to notice them as they arise and recognizing them as the flickering shadows that they are you will be less likely to be drawn in by them. They become less of a problem. In general, pain and struggle remain as conditions of life, but your relationship to them will have changed, rendering them lighter and easier to manage. He goes on to say that in the three pillars of Zen, we don't we don't get the years that uh, how it unfolded for the various people who um, give their enlightenment accounts. We just get the account with the end of the account being being the kensho. So we don't get a sense of how they how their lives unfolded after that. Um, In his second book. the Zen merging of East and West, there was quite a lot of material um, to kind of uh, correct the false impressions that people had um, got from the Three Pillars of Zen about romantic notions, about the impact of, of Kensho. In, in one um, part, somebody at a, at a workshop, a lot, of it, a lot of it is in dramatic dramatic. Dialogues in A workshop participant asks uh, Roshi Kaplow Doesn't enlightenment clear away imperfections And personality full of flaws And his reply in the book No, it shows them up And he, this was the theme um, uh, For him The way in which uh, Seeing a glimpse of our true nature Sort of highlights If anything Our, our shortcomings we, they, we become more painfully aware of them. This this answer given by Philip Kaplow echoes, um, uh, Roshi Koheed writes, the Chinese monk Tungsheng Yangjie, who asked, was asked immediately after his awakening, are you happy now? And Tungsheng replied, It's not that I'm not happy, but my happiness is like that of someone who has picked up a bright pearl from a heap of garbage. My happiness is like that of someone who has picked up a bright pearl from a heap of garbage. In other words, he's acknowledging the work there is still for him to do. My own experiences, as well as reports have I had, have had from others, match Dong Hiao sentiments. One does not remain long in the emotional heights described in the Three Pillars. In fact, years later, you wonder how you could have imagined that it was any kind of crowning experience. I think here um, that one of the factors in the romanticization of Kensho, that when the book first came out was the timing it was the late 60s and early 70s and many of the kids who came to the rochester zen center came from um, doing lsd and other drugs and then they may have uh, imagined kensho as a kind of an ultimate trip um, or, or amazing experience kind of uh, could maybe Call it spiritual hedonism and, and I don't think that only those people um, Can get into this That we, we may have experiences In our, in our practice of um, joy and ease And really be- become attached to those And want, want more of them He continues By far the most significant vista Revealed by Kensho Is the vastness of mind And the great distance one still has To go to approach full realization Zen master Dogen warned You only get it when you're still halfway If you think you've gone all the way Keep going This is a beautiful instruction You only get it when you're still halfway If you find that you've gone all the way, keep going. The deeper the awakening, the more conspicuous become the lingering impurities, which come to appear ever more subtle and textured. It is like climbing a mountain and at every plateau seeing layered hills that recede further into the hazy distance. To be afforded such a view might be intolerably daunting if one had not also seen that those body-mind defilements are essentially empty, devoid of any self-substance. With continued practice, the impurities evoke less aversion and more fascination at their staying power. Tomorrow we'll take up a koan which addresses this very thing The enlightenment section of the three pillars may leave readers with romantic notions of Kensho as a climactic achievement but the Iwasaki letters in the following section provide a vaster perspective Yaiko Iwasaki was a young Japanese woman in fragile health most of her life who died of tuberculosis in 1935. In just the last few days before her death she had a series of successively deeper awakenings as confirmed by Harada Roshi. These letters are a stirring testimony, testimony to the spirit of ceaseless exertion. Who could not marvel at Yaiko's faith and courage at the determination that braced her efforts. To those who have passed the first gate, or the second or the third, she's an awe inspiring model. A Chinese Zen master could have had her in mind when he said, the unenlightened must strive as if mourning father and mother. The enlightened too must strive as if mourning father and mother. That kind of extremity is what is required. As if mourning our father and our mother. As if having lost what is most precious to us. Because not to know true nature is to have lost what is most precious but we can find our way back psychological research has shown that the greater the emphasis placed on a certain goal, the greater the likelihood that people will stop after attaining that goal. In my teaching, I no longer speak of kensho as anything to set one's sights on, nor do I inflate expectations associated with passing one's first koan. Too too, Too many students have managed to break through this first barrier only to find that it was hardly the silver bullet they had imagined it would be. A person with the mind that seeks the way will shrug off this element of mourning after disappointment and persevere. But a less experienced student with just a faint opening may lose faith in the practice. In consideration of this, I have grown increasingly strict about passing people on their first koan. At the same time, I have tried to raise the bar by speaking more consistently of deep awakening or even full awakening which is a goal we can all work toward together. This is, this is really the, the context we need to put our efforts in. Um, to, to set our sights on Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Given that even a solid Kensho is but the entrance to the true Dharma and that the Three Pillars of Zen reminds us of this repeatedly, why are so many practitioners so eager to clutch at Kensho as the be-all and end-all? Why are we so ready to be borne aloft on wings of desire by tales of heroic spiritual struggle and the promise of a fabled lotus land of enlightenment? because we know that they are not mere tales, and that right where we stand is indeed the true lotus land. At some level of the mind, we know that enlightenment is our nature. We resonate to first-hand accounts of awakening, because we recognize home when we hear about it. Another another reason for this um, uh, selective reading of the three pillars is in uh, perhaps a more a more mundane one is that the heights will always be more alluring than the depths. But the truth is, you can't have mountains without valleys. Show me where the mountain turns into the valley Or where the valley turns into the mountain You can't separate them They come together There's a, there's a saying in, uh, in Jungian psychology um, The way up is the way down Maybe it's the way down is the way up. But the point is that descent and ascent go together. We descend into our uh, difficulties and our our, our stuckness and our... uh, wild passions that we that can surprise us with their their autonomy. That, that without doing this we can't liberate ourselves. We're all of a peace. Back to our main text, um, Rocha Grave. For whatever reasons, the enlightenment stories in the Three Pillars do cross over the inescapable vicissitudes of Zen practice. As the Japanese put it, seven times down, eight times up, such is life. Seven times down, eight times up, such is life. valleys and mountains, valleys and mountains the accounts say very little about the setbacks and plateaus and sitting or the riptide pull of habit patterns or the disheartening reversions to ego-centered modes of behavior also omitted are the ongoing battles with concentration so long as we have a body we will have thoughts Then there are the periods of self-doubt and internal conflict when one asks oneself Did I really have an awakening? Is this all there is? Why isn't my life transformed? In our darkest moments we even suffer a loss of faith. Did my teacher pass me too easily? Does she really know what she's doing? Maybe her teacher passed her too easily. the stories do not address the truth that ripening karma in all its multifarious manifestations remains operative. In terms of the ten ox-herding pictures, when the Kensho accounts spotlight only the third ox-herding picture, the modulating effects of the preceding and following pictures are minimized or lost altogether. Ripening karma We're not in any way somehow inoculated against this because we've um, experienced kensho or even deep awakening Our ripening karma can take innumerable forms Illness The death of somebody we love. Bankruptcy. Mental illness. What a little insight will help us with, though, is, is rolling with these different kinds of uh, misfortunes that it can it us working more skillfully with them It's also per- important to understand with these ten ox-herding pictures that um, we don't—they're not, not entirely linear. It's not like we, we, we once we've we've seen the footprints and and um, glimpsed the ox that it's all straightforward from there. In different in different sort of aspects of our lives, we can be back at square one, searching. We don't um, attain mastery in all aspects of our lives all at once. We may be more adept in some areas than in others. Kensho, the merest glimpse into the realm of the absolute, just shows the way, nothing more. It does not produce an actual transformation. That is done through continuous daily practice, practice, observance of the precepts and compassionate action. Many people believe that with enlightenment the hard work is done and now they can relax and enjoy themselves. Actually, the hard work has just begun. In time their lives will indeed be transformed but it does not happen with the initial kensho. It does not happen all at once and it does not happen without considerable effort. When Roshi Kaplow went to Japan he he Admitted that his notion was to to get Kencho and run, but as he as he uh, went through his training, that that idea that you could do that uh, was was. washed away through the process of of the work the truth is with a shallow one-sided kensho almost universally initial kenshos are shallow you cannot truly be called enlightened you have merely exchanged seeing with only one eye for seeing with only the other In the first case, you are half-blinded by the aspect of discrimination, taken in by the usual distinctions among phenomena. In the second, you are half-blinded by the aspect of emptiness, able to intuit oneness but unable to actualize it. If you are not adequately prepared for the experience of awakening, are too careless or immature to sustain continued practice or become attached to the experience itself, the benefits of the awakening will be extremely limited. Let's just take these one by one. If you are not adequately prepared for the experience of awakening, I mentioned this before that um, developing uh, stability of mind uh, through uh, breath practice is extremely important. This is, this is the preparation, one, one of the aspects of preparation for um, koan work. A stabilised mind, a mind that we can, we can uh, direct. That's, that's uh, as Alan Wallace puts it, serviceable. An, an, an adequate understanding of, of the, the, the teachings, the basic teachings of Buddhism, is also very important. If you're too careless or immature to sustain continued practice, there are lots. There are lots of stories um, of people I heard from from my teacher and others of people who have uh, who had a very early experience and and stopped practicing with with the experience. It's not necessarily such a great thing to have that happen. We may all want it to not have to, to make the, the effort, we imagine, but it actually can be counterproductive. Or if you become attached to the experience itself, this is a very dangerous one. You can have some very um, um, stirring, emotional experience, But if we if we then afterwards are focused on trying to get back to that experience, then we can actually sabotage the whole process. Nevertheless, it would be hard, a sad mistake to conclude that Kensho is valueless. As the sutra says, if you are bound yourself, you cannot untie another's bonds. Kinsho loosens the knots so that we can untangle ourselves and eventually help others to do the same. With continued training, deeper awakenings will follow. There are few indeed, Yaiko Iwasaki being one of them, who have come to deep enlightenment in one fell swoop, and even Yaiko began with Kensho. Kensho shows the way, setting our feet on the road to full enlightenment so that's, This is a good image, a good analogy Setting our feet on the road to enlightenment The walk is still ahead of us We have to keep putting one foot in front of the other But we're on the road Heading in the right direction Up until this point, we uh, spend it, put a lot of effort into going in all kinds of directions, which don't lead us in the, towards liberation. In the Iwasaki letters, Harada Roshi points out, it is only with full enlightenment that it is possible to put your Zen practice in daily life. This can be interpreted to mean that only after profound enlightenment does one's daily life naturally come into accord with one's realization. That is, there is no compulsion No self-conscious effort to incorporate what one has realized into one's daily activities. It's simply one's life. Only with this degree of understanding is the illusion of ego obliterated. There is no self, no other. What one sees, hears and does, one is. Things are as they are without distortion. Daily life is the expression of practice. Practice is the expression of compassion. One sits not just for oneself, but for the sake of all sentient beings. Thus, no matter what, one will continue on and on. Zen Master Hakuin's words ring clear. Exert yourself, students, for the Buddha way is deep and far. Let everyone know that the farther you enter the sea, the deeper it becomes, and the higher you climb a mountain, the taller it gets. Exert yourself, students, for the Buddha way is deep and far Let everyone know that the farther you enter the sea, the deeper it becomes And the higher you climb a mountain, the taller it gets And she concludes Have I resolved the koan of the three pillars Kensho accounts? I don't know Like all koans, it is a bottomless fount Ten years from now, things may look very different to me, but there is something I am certain will never change. My profound gratitude to Philip Kaplow for writing The Three Pillars of Zen and my even deeper gratitude to him for being my teacher. And yes, Roshi, thank you for those difficult to penetrate, difficult to unravel, difficult to enter enter wonderful enlightenment stories. How do we requite our debt of gratitude For this this teaching That we received Yes, with, with Its shadow side as well But which we benefit from One way is and the most important way is to keep practicing and to, to realize this Dharma to the best of our ability and, and for, for teachers doing our best to, to try to see clearly what students need. Do our best to to be aware of any distortions that creep in. It's important that we we, uh, receive the Dharma in in a rounded way not just um, seeing it narrowly as, as having some special experience, but more broadly in terms of, of this, this um, liberative undertaking. We can't unbind others unless we unbind our own hands. We'll stop here and recite the four bows.